you know, to ha- to have these mosques and synagogues and churches also close together, there's something about that that is, I think, the ideal, that mm. is the the goal in some ways. And of course, it's hard. Yeah. But, you know, the holy land, it, it's called the holy land. You know, both you and I, Char, do this discipline of walking barefoot. Yeah. And we do that in recognition. We both do it um, in recognition of holy ground. Barefoot to Emmaus. I am Byron. And I'm Char. We're glad you're with us. And so, oof. Theology is difficult. <laughs> theology is complicated. Theology is practical. It's embodied. Mm-hmm. It's political. It's geographical. It's historical. It's mm-hmm. um, ethics and morals and, and ethnicities and all sorts of things tied together in one. I can think of no more potent and also extreme example of this than the kind of theological, and not just theological, but also uh, like historical, political situation of um, Israel and Palestine, especially in the context of the current conflict, um, which has escalated into a war. Uh, You could maybe call it a war that's just been ongoing but yeah uh currently as we're recording this it is friday october 20th but we may or may not get to release this episode for a while so probably about three weeks uh we just state that in terms of a caveat of yeah who knows you know so by mid-november who knows where things will be in the world like this is a scary enough situation and big enough situation that you know, I've heard some people throwing around the words World War Three. Wow. I, I heard a newscaster sharing that this is the kind of situation, which is pretty rare in all things considered, where any given minute you can have new information. Like, it is constantly changing. Mm-hmm. I felt a similar thing around Russia when Russia invaded oh, Ukraine. Yeah. There were some... It was really kind of fascinating and and shocking to see some of the developments. Even I think one of the most this this sounds maybe small, tiny detail, but before the Russia Ukraine war, most of the West referred to Kiev as Kiev, which is how, which is like the Russian name for Kiev, which is this capital city of Ukraine. And now that there was all of this media attention. I've heard most Western media outlets refer to it as Kiev. Interesting. Which, I mean, so like little things like that, that like I'm already noticing the terminology around Hamas, for instance, yeah. or around like Palestinians and things and, and the the land itself and, and things like that shifting and changing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I hear that stuff is stuff is developing and changing. Yeah. This is one of those... 
deeply, like you were saying, historical, but also emotional conflicts because it's related to identity. And I think mm-hmm. this is something that we're going to have to get into is the understanding of identity, not just connected to land. You know, it's not just, oh, in you know our context here, like, oh, we're you know, Americans, because we are in this land, which, you know, is itself colonized land that has been termed America. So now no matter where we go, because we're from that land, no, but it's like an historic reach to an identity that is cultural and religious. And that has been, I mean, I'm talking about the Jewish identity right now, that has been one of potentially the most and maybe I don't even want to say that because that's, um, we'll just say one of the most oppressed identities throughout history mm. in various contexts. It's not just World War II. I mean, that is the potentially like the, the climax of the historical tension in some ways, but it is by no means um, yeah. an anomaly, right? This, you know, historically... And, and, and Christians have been hugely responsible for this anti-Semitism. Mm. So there, there's just a lot of layers, and, you know, particularly then for us to think about as us as Christians commenting on this, um, a deep sensitivity that is necessary. And, you know, the qualifier to our listeners that um, we are doing our best to be informed, um, but by no means do we believe ourselves to be the experts on this topic. Right. Yeah. Lot, lots of caveats, lots of qualifications. I, I don't want to presume upon people's grace too much, you know, if we get something wrong. Uh, but this is such a contentious and sensitive and, and disagreeable topic that people have really extreme, uh, not just opinions, but even like facts hmm. that, like historical interpretations and things that are vastly different. I often say, so, I mean, context, I grew up in Palestine. Mm-hmm. I grew up in Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. And that does weird things. You know, we left because of the Second Antifada, the Second Civil War, in, like, uh, was that late uh, 1999 or early 2000s? Um yeah, because we were in Jordan during 9-11, which was a separate Middle Eastern event, arguably. So, like, there's this kind of, you know, my, my approach to this whole topic is, like, it's very personal in some ways. I have friends in both Palestine and, and Israel. Um, but I also left when I was really, really young. And so there's this almost imposter syndrome of like oh well I should know things and I really don't because I was a kid when I left but I have you know uh, a certain type of experience and information and things uh, but but the thing that I always say and to some extent it's a little bit of just like a catch-all caveat of like hopefully humility and sensitivity there is no single topic in human discourse in my opinion that is more complicated um, than this topic. I was telling Char, like, you know, I I had a conversation with some Sunday school kids of mine um, 
about abortion recently, and it was easier emotionally and you know scientifically and legally and whatever than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Like quantum physics is easier <laughs> than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, yeah, it's just so so multifaceted and stuff. So so I mean that as yeah as Char was saying, humility and sensitivity. Yeah. All right, so let's dive in. <laughs> let's dive in, I guess. Um, yeah, I think it's probably pretty important to start with, I think, to start with history. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then, and then we'll see, because history will, will come up quite quickly into, like, politics, which may then lead into, like, justice and then theology. There's also this whole like biblical direction of mm. prophecies that mm. I'm hearing in certain Christian circles that is, I think, usually pretty irresponsible and ungrounded. But anyway, I think it's probably important to touch on that at some point. But uh, history, like Absolutely. what even is Israel? What is this region? Like what is some of that oppression and tragedy that you alluded to? Yeah, so like, I don't know, how far back do you want to go in the beginning, right? <laughs> like, we, for some reason, have, like, the entire fact that we have the Bible and Christianity and, you know, this this mythological, cultural, background, religious framework comes from the fact that this one small people group's like religious writings happen to be preserved mm. right? like a pretty irrelevant well not irrelevant i guess but a pretty like small cultural yeah tribe <laughs> that that somehow has impacted the world so disproportionately yeah. so right like um Mm-hmm. In the scope of nations and empires of their time, Israel was never massive. They were never right. be forced yeah. to be reckoned with. You know, it's not, you know, they're they're not any bigger than, you know, some random tribal groups throughout history on any continent. Mm-hmm. You know, so the fact that we that they've made such an outsized impact in history is fascinating. So, so uh Abraham Right. I mean, that's probably where it starts. Right. God called Abraham. And that connects with um, that immediately connects with, you know, the three Abrahamic religions, starting with uh, the Jews and Arabs kind of primarily because you get Isaac and Ishmael and, you know, they go up and split. And then you have these different just like ethnic groups, I guess. But then you continue down the line and you get Jacob and Esau. Again, more splitting of like family lines and Jacob becomes Israel. Israel literally meaning the one who wrestles or struggles with God. His character is typified by a little bit of cunning and conniving and uh, scrappiness to fight for uh, the blessing of God. Um, Both with the angel. Yeah, and as I've said, desperation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, right. <laughs> you know, 
to to show you off for a second. I love your <laughs> Geminist theology take on Jacob and Esau. So then Israel goes on. He has 12 kids by four different women, and then they're stuck in Egypt. Or, you know, I, I, don't, I shouldn't say stuck. I don't want to under represent it. They were enslaved in Egypt, according to the mythology. And then is, is there archaeological evidence of this? Who knows? But, but Abraham is promised this holy land, the Canaanites land already, someone else's land, which is complicated. But Moses is the prophet and comes along and smites Egypt with a whole bunch of plagues and death and all sorts of scary things. And then the and then we get this transition from Israelites, this kind of small tribe people group, to Hebrews, the kind of ones who wander and, and cross over, Havah, um, which, you know, gets complicated because arguably, I mean, the Bible says in, in Exodus, actually, there were multiple people groups, but then also from the 12 tribes, arguably, way, they wander around and they get to the land and it's occupied so they you know this is the the tension of the book of joshua and and first and second samuel and stuff and so they have got to fight a bunch of different people groups and sometimes they're winning sometimes they're losing there's already these kind of big questions that you know as a youth pastor one of the biggest questions that anyone any kid ever asks is what do we do with the violence you know of the old testament that is done in the name of God, and even more so, people of Israel. That is said, the God that God endorses. Right. It's not just in right. the name of God, because we can do a lot of shit in the name of God. Right. Yeah. yeah, God endorses or commands. Right. So then the history continues. They're like, we want to. So they did all of that under these series of judges, um, who kind of were like a prophetic role of slash military commander mm. interesting uh but then it goes on and they're like we want a king and they're like mm, not sure you do but they get a king and that's king saul and then king saul's not great and so they get king david and king david is powerful and impressive and has a son solomon who is like also maybe even magical according to some of the theology mm. uh in in other parts of uh, Hebrew tradition, at least, and stuff, you know, goes on. But then there's this classic back and forth wandering uh, with God and away from God. And then the kingdom splits. You've got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the northern kingdom doesn't always walk with God, and the southern kingdom does walk with God slightly more often. Slightly more often. <laughs> but then, right. And then these empires come in. Well, okay, I should say the prophets, you know, come in to point towards this incredible and uh, quite admirable uh, tradition of self-critique. Uh, like you, you have these tensions in at least the, the Hebrew scriptures in as much as it pertains to Israel of some self-aggrandizement in terms of maybe overstating numbers sometimes or overstating victories or understating defeats. But then you also have this incredible humility of being able to call itself out and record that mm. history mm. for the future generations. So anyway, you get empires, Assyria, Babylon, people are scattered. You've got um, most of the tribes 
go off and are scattered and lost. And eventually, you know, through King David's line, you get, uh, it, after the Old Testament ends, after the Hebrew Bible is over, there's a 400 year, 200 year period of history where the Greeks come in and then the Romans come in. And so, you know, you, you show up in the, this is like super, super uh, huge, high elevation overview, but I think it's relevant to kind of characterize what's yeah. going on. But so then you, we've got these temples that have been rebuilt or this temple that I think by Jesus's time is probably the third one because there was the first temple and then second temple period. And then Herod rebuilt the one I think in Jesus's time. So then, you know, you get this random weird splinter group called Christians, uh, but, and they go off, you know, catch up with them later. But uh, then 70 AD, there's a big revolution and the Romans come in and destroy that temple. And this is probably one of the biggest, I don't know, like catastrophes for the Hebrew people. Cause this is a very, it's a sacrificial system of worship at the temple and then it turns to this rabbinical tradition mm. and the people are scattered once again and i can't track a lot of the history between 70 ad when with the destruction of the temple and then a bunch of like i guess in in the third century christianity has decidedly split off maybe even by the end of the first century there are more Gentile Christians than there are Jewish Christians. And so they've split off and then there's this problem with cutting out Jews mm -hmm. and anti-Semitic, um, supersessionism, mm -hmm. this idea of replacing Jews or cutting them out or- That Christians so have replaced Jews as God's people. Right, right, as the heresy. It, that's what the heresy was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying <laughs> Right, right, right. Um, but this, you know, the narrative continues. Uh, Jews by the Middle Ages are pretty maligned socially, and there's laws against them that kind of push them in, that restrict their, like, job opportunities, and so they are, they've got weird social roles. I and mean, yeah, exactly. it's restricting their humanity in a lot of ways. It's, it's, mm. you know, oftentimes defining them outside of the human subject, which historically, you know, the further we move on, the more this becomes a racial topic too. Mm. But, you know, even, even prior to the notion of whiteness, there was the understanding of Jews as being outside of that human subject. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you get these problematic narratives of Jews as Christ killers. That that narrative like remains for many centuries, and just building up antagonism. So even in the Middle Ages, this is kind of building and building. Uh, during the 11th century, um, Jews take a very uh, deep turn into liter literary. Uh, discipline. So our oldest texts come from, I think, Russia and some other parts of Europe that have these like really well-preserved uh, Hebrew Bible translations and 
things like that. Anyway, so then you then basically again another jump of many centuries, you get to the rise of. Well, I guess there's probably some major stuff in the Middle Ages with the Crusades, and that ends up being largely a Muslim Christian thing. And I think Jews are, I'm sure you know someone who's an expert of this would be like Byron, how could you possibly overstate this? But in the at least just colloquial articulation of the Crusades, it's about Jerusalem, but it's about Jerusalem from a Christian perspective, and the Jews are quite uh, invisibilized or marginalized in that conversation. So then jumping forward, you know, more centuries, you get to the rise of World War II, and Jewish people in Europe are, especially Germany, are scapegoated for economic issues, and you get this, uh, the atrocity of the Nazi genocide against uh, Jews that ends up with six million Jews yeah. massacred and 11 or 12 million people in general. Yeah. Which has gone forth to both Holocaust and Shoah, which are the two words I've used, I've heard used to describe it. Both of those are Jewish words, yeah. aren't they? And Holocaust has the connotation of a whole burnt offering or sacrifice, which is problematic. So some people use the word Shoah, which means destruction, I believe, right? Yeah. Yep, that's right. So anyway, that is the history up till, like, that's many centuries, many, many centuries of history up till kind of World War II and the, the resolution of that. Char, I know that you, thanks for your patience and letting me just Oh, ramble. no, I appreciate um, you sharing all that. I would love to hear any kind of corrections or like things you think I missed there. But I also know that, um, like I, I mentioned growing up in the Middle East, but because I left, there's, and because I left when I was so young, there's a lot of like practical detailed knowledge. There's a lot that happened between kind of 1945 and the modern day. Yeah. Um, you went and you visited, and in order to do that trip with integrity, you did a lot of research. That's right, um, yeah. So, And you wrote something about it? Yeah, I, I, I wrote a brief little it? reflection that sort of encapsulated, um, perhaps simplifies, but, you know, attempting to maintain the most salient points to describe this historical moment. Um, just zooming back just a little bit, though, you're talking about yeah. after um, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the preservation of Jewish cultural and religious practice at this time was largely because of rabbinic Judaism. Um, mm. And this became the uh, direction that um, Orthodox Judaism evolved from, where, mm. you know, prior to this point, you did have these various schools um, of Judaism. You know, we, we've, we had an episode, I think, where we discussed these in, in more depth, the Zealots, the Essenes. Pharisees and Sadducees. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So um, the, these, these different sects of Judaism or different schools evolved historically, right? Like the Hasmonean dynasty in... Under the Maccabees? Under the Maccabees, exactly, under that period, yep. Um, well, so the Maccabees was the Jewish resistance. Right. Um, but in this period, you know, there's this, um, evolution of the nuanced 
the nuanced identities, political identities between empire and the Jewish people. And so with the Roman empire, um, there's this question of like, where do we fall in line? You know, how, how best do we support our own people in the face of oppression? And some of it was, you know, um, joining sides. Some of it was active resistance. And that's where you get these various um, groups within Judaism is, is that the religious identity is deeply steeped with the political identity. Mm -hmm. how, how do mm -hmm. we most both maybe idealistically and or practically uh, wrestle with the questions of identity in the face of an imperfect current political context? So the only reason I want to say that is because I think that themes of that are very much relevant to the circumstance today. But mm -hmm. yeah, so then we fast forward. Um, when we get to World War I, anti-Semitism was already deeply steeped in mm -hmm. uh, the German... Zeitgeist? Yes, exactly. The zeitgeist, the, the, the cultural mentality. This was not something mm -hmm. that was, you know, I mean, we, we, you've described just a little bit of um, how it's existed throughout much of history, but um, particularly in this region there was salience to this um idea that it had prevalence and so jews then became the scapegoat to uh -huh. the german failure in world war one so german society after world war one is in essentially complete collapse their currency has you know inflation has gone through the roof it's worth nothing you know, children are playing with stacks of bills as like building blocks. That's how little the money was worth, you know, and, and there's this sense of despair, this sense of um, agonizing over um, the, the existential uh, loss of identity, the, the sense of um, identity having, needing a place of security. So the German identity was in flux in a, in a very, existentially threatening way and so this is why hitler was so um successful is a he was a charismatic leader he was politically savvy i mean vicious you know but but savvy i i went to a holocaust museum recently and i was appalled but also deeply fascinated uh, by how quickly hitler was able to take over politically right. you know he was elected chancellor i think it was 1933 and by 1935 he had germany under his pinky finger i mean we're talking a span of three years which is which is wild and you know the way he yeah. did it was in part with the secret police it was um, a cultural poisoning right that he's already um feeding into what is what is already there in the waters and he's bringing it out kind of like trump honestly um I think Hitler was a lot more savvy than Trump. Um, mm. But in similar ways, the power isn't that there's this one figure who is manifesting something unique, but that they're speaking to a repressed um, but very potent and prevalent ideology, which mm. is we need to point at someone in order to feel okay about ourselves to justify our suffering. And in this case, our suffering is the result of the Jews. The Jews are the poison to society. And so that is 
how the rise of the Nazi Third Reich was able to be so successful in part, you know, again, everything here is going to be a simplification, but um, is because the sentiments were already there and it gave them, the German people, a sense that it's not our fault that we have um, had such societal collapse. It's, it's the fault of someone right. else. And because of that, there's also hope for our um, return. So that's just a little bit a political backdrop from World War I to World War II. I want to talk a little bit about Palestine now and Israel. Um, it's really interesting in a formal sense. Right. Palestine was never actually a country. Never, you know, the, the political identity um, of, uh, of a country. Like a nation state. Like a nation state, yeah. So right. um, it's a region, and it's a region that has been occupied by uh, an Arab people for very, very, very long. Like, you know, th this people has been indigenous to this land for a very long time. Most recently, this land was part of the territory of the Ottoman Empire, which was a thing until, or through World War I, until they lost and the Allies, in large part Britain, seized most of that land. Um, the land that is now Israel-Palestine became a place for Jewish refugees because of its historical um, identity as the promised land or, you know, our understanding of where the Jewish people resided, right? So, so it became a place for Jewish refugees from World War I through World War II. But this is the British declaration. This is not something that was um, simply independently and internally chosen by Jewish people to migrate there. This was a political decree. So I think there had been migration, slight like migration ideas from Jewish groups. Oh yes, definitely, definitely. Yeah. No, no. It, this this was not an independent idea of um, the British powers, but mm. it was something that was, um, it was a partition that was signed into place. Mm. Um, which I'll, I'll get to that in in a second here, but. During this time, though, this region took in roughly 700,000 Jewish refugees. And this is remarkable because the area only contained about 1.2 million Arabs. So close to, you know, I don't know what that is, about 30% now of this region are refugees. So British rule under the British mandate for Palestine was obligated to create and enforce policy on behalf of both Jews and Arabs. There were two distinct types of Jews, those of Arab origin and those of Eastern European origin. Part of Palestinian resistance to Jews in this time was because of Zionist aims to take over that land, to reclaim it as, you know, our promised land, um, the nation of Israel. Some of that was done legally, by the way, which was through the purchasing of land and in that way ac acquiring that land from Palestinians. But also... Part of the resistance was due to this rapidly accelerated growth in the Jewish population compared to that of the Palestinian population. So there, there's a sense of fear of being taken over. Mm. After World War II, the UN passed a partition resolution to divide the Palestinian region into two independent states, one Jewish, one Palestinian, in order to address the tension in the region. Israel approved of this. But Palestine didn't, which makes sense, seeing as their land was theirs as part of the Ottoman Empire up until British acquisition. And even then was still largely within their control, 
as is the case of most colonial ruled British occupied territories. Israel declared their independence as a state despite Palestinians, the Palestinian resistance to this partition. And this prompted a military response, not just from the Palestinian region, but other neighboring Arab states. So now the um, self-identified land of Israel, nation of Israel, is being threatened from all sides. So um, pop it, popping in just for a second, I think you're referring to the Yom Kippur War in the 70s, yes. like 19, yes. early 70s, mid 70s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, um, the, Israel was attacked by an Arab movement and Israel, somewhat to everyone's surprise, won yeah. really, really soundly. Sorry, it's, just to interrupt. No, no, that's, for that was a, that was reference good. Of, of time. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, it, it was a remarkable. We, yeah, we've shifted over thirty years now. Yeah, it was a remarkable uh, and surprising victory. That in a similar way that Hamas's current attack is pretty remarkable. The cut everyone off guard. Yeah, yeah. That that they're. Yeah. So. Um, we have then, so Israel manages to win this war, surprisingly, and in the resulting armistice, they ended up acquiring more land. So now this self-identified nation state has grown even larger because of their victory in this war. So over this time, and then as time has continued for various reasons, which we can get into, Palestine's land has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk and shrunk, where now it's just the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. And both of these have also been occupied to various degrees by Israel. Now and we get, monitored with resources. Yes, exactly. So um, very important, again, when I started here, that Palestine is not an independent nation. One of the ways that this is relevant today is that they don't have control over their own electricity and water and other essential resources. This is within... Israeli control and it has been shut off, you know, at various points, um, particularly right now. So now we get to Hamas. So Hamas, an Islamic Palestinian nationalist resistance group, was established in 1987 in the Gaza Strip to promote the nation of Palestine. So this desire to have finally a nation state identity for Palestine. And they conducted terror attacks on Israel and over time ended up winning government control over the Gaza Strip. Now, importantly here, uh, Hamas was not voted into power by the Palestinian people. This is a common point really? of confusion. They're, yeah, I'm confused. The, the last election was back in 2006. So they, they may have actually been elected at that point. But since then, in the way of a dictatorship, there haven't been democratic elections. Right. And how fair were those elections given the tactics used? Yeah. Yeah. The, the question of consent is always a complicated one. But very importantly, you know, when the Gaza Strip has 50% uh, of its population under the age of 18, mm -hmm. and 2006 being, what is it now, 16 years ago, 17 mm -hmm. years ago? <laughs> the last time that there was any election is prior to at least half of the population of Gaza 
being alive and certainly yeah. being aware and able to participate. So, yeah, this is uh, one quick question. Yeah. This is, again, these are things that maybe I should know. And, you know, dear listener, take this as evidence of, you know, how little, at least historical political authority, but also, you know, that, that gives you a sense of people who are in general, kind of trying to stay somewhat informed and, and care very much how little we know, yeah. um, to point to, you know, the issues of misinformation and propaganda and, and bias and all these things. Um, the West Bank, that is the, the region, you know, the Gaza Strip is bordering uh, the Mediterranean mm -hmm. Sea. The West Bank is, what that means is the West Bank of the Jordan River. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of between, you know, it's north, east Israel, um, includes Bethlehem and Nazareth kind of areas. Um, when I grew up, Bethlehem was not surrounded by a wall. And now it is because Bethlehem is like right up next to Jerusalem, mm -hmm. which is solidly Israeli and pretty close to Tel Aviv. I mean, again, remember, this is like a 30 mile stretch of land. It's mm -hmm. tiny. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think Hamas does not influence as much or not speak for the West Bank, which is a whole other Palestinian population. Yeah. Yeah, because, again, there's no organized political uh na national identity here this is yeah. you know a people who has existed in this region for a very long time but in the wake of evolving political dynamics has geographically been split that there's there's nothing connecting the western banking and the gaza strip right so you're right yeah so, over time, Hamas won governmental control of the Gaza Strip and still has that power. Though Hamas does not represent Palestine as a whole, it has become a scapegoat to justify Israeli imperialism and violence against Palestine. Which, to be fair, this imperialism, perhaps not the violence to the same extent, but the imperialism certainly, had already been happening historically. Mm. So, this is not new, but now it has a scapegoat. Since Israel's creation, the UN has passed at least 42 resolutions against Israel for violating international law. And this was back in 2019, so there might be more. Uh, 17 of which were passed before Hamas existed. However, because of the US's special relationship with, with Israel, which itself is complicated, but you know, there's um, religious and economic um, incentives that are motivating this lobbying effort. Um, so because of the U.S. special interest, the U.S., with its veto power in the U.N., shut down every resolution against Israel. And this is one of the issues with the U.N. When we kind of issues of uh, international political bodies and what they're attempting to do, you know, on a global scale and how it's mostly like white run and what, a, yada, yada. Like the, there are more issues that we can talk about the U.N. This is not the focus of, of today. Mm. But um, <laughs> the U.N. has essentially zero power because of the veto power of its um, prime figures. So there's, I forget the term, but there's a group of nations that have veto power to any uh -huh. um, resolution that is passed by the UN. And it just takes one veto vote for a resolution to be shut down. And so given the fact that the US, China, and Russia each have veto power, 
nothing is ever done that makes any difference on the historical, political, geographic scale <laughs> by the UN. So all that to say, all of the resolutions from the UN have been shut down by the US. Against that Israel. continued uh, up till this week. There, I mean, it, it still continued. That was that was that proved to be true once again this week. Mm. Yeah. So forty-two is definitely an outdated number for the number of resolutions against Israel. But all that to say, we can understand in this context that you have a people, the Jewish people, who have suffered more oppression, more persecution than almost any other group. And perhaps if we want to talk about historical length of time, they have been the most oppressed group throughout history. Mm -hmm. There is a, for many, you know, in, in the wake of the Shoah, there was a sense that Judaism was dead because God is dead. That the practice of Judaism the, the following of the mitzvot was a relic of the past. And, and this, to be fair, this came from Jewish theologians. Yes, yes. There was probably to them and, and maybe even to the world a surprising new life that flowed through Judaism. That in large part, probably the return to um, the Middle East of, you know, again, hundreds of thousands of Jewish refugees coming together in the wake of this suffering to re reclaim with new um, reverence, but also new intensity, their identity. Mm. That now more than ever before in their um, recent generational memory, this was a matter of life or death. Yeah. And so we have to hold that and understand that the Jewish people, for one, is different than the uh, political identity of the nation of Israel. Absolutely. But there's also, of course, interplay between the people and the nation, um, both in terms of how culture and values shape the leaders, you know, and, and support yeah. and, you know, what... Um, yeah, what, what support the people offer to the efforts of the government, so on and so forth. But um, you, you have all of this tension, all of this suffering that motivates the need for a new home. But, but you're moving into a home where someone else is already living. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not like the Middle East was an area that these Jewish refugees moved into and didn't di displace anyone, just a, just a yeah, vacant I mean, lot, you know. Going as far back as Abraham, that is the case. Yeah. So so then, you, you know, you also have this biblical historical question, which we talked about very briefly earlier, but like, what do we do with the fact that we read, a God, read about a God who condones the genocide of the Canaanites in order to make space for the Hebrew people to have this promised land. Yeah. I mean, indigenous theologians in America have picked up on this narrative as 
being one that helped contribute to American entitlement mm. or like white American settler colonialist entitlement to like this land yeah. of America, um, of the continent. Israeli young people are more it, it it's the first time that I can think of I heard someone say this that um the young people are more conservative and nationalistic and right-wing than their parents' generation. That actually doesn't surprise me. And I think it fits in with the yeah. global reality, which is that we're, we're experiencing a pendulum shift where, you know, there, there was a growth, particularly in the um, 90s and 1000s, um, that the pendulum had shifted left again. And now we're hitting an era of the pendulum shifting right, a reaction to progressive movements, a reaction to progressive politics, um, a reaction to progressive personal self-discovery. You know, a lot of this is the wake of the um, celebration of queerness. Mm -hmm. Certainly not exclusively, but I think this is a very visible, at least in the U.S. context. I'm not speaking to Israel at this point. Um yeah, no, Israel is surprisingly, like, liberal, progressive in terms of its own views on, mm. like, I'm pretty sure, like, queer queerness is pretty accepted in Israel. Like, it's really progressive in some ways, but it is, it, because it kind of came together from all of these different groups just in the last century, like, it is the most diverse uh, country in the world, like more so than the US even, that has all its immigration and, and stuff. Yeah, Israel's like, I mean, this is one of the things that makes it so complicated is that it is so diverse even within itself. Yeah. There's a lot of disagreement. Like <laughs> Israel is nowhere near a two party system. Mm. You know, you, you can get five people together and, and form a political party in Israel. I think actually one, one other just historical theological point um, the idea of the, the Canaanites and the Philistines, I, this, I keep hearing conflicting information on this, but I'm reasonably sure that Philistines, like Palestinian is a, is a Greek title given to the people of that region. And it's not a particularly nice term. Mm. I think it is related to the same people groups that were the Philistines, like David and Goliath, like the Goliath's group that had all this conflict. So they were there and a lot of Jews did stay. So the Palestinians in like 1905 were about one third Muslim, one third Christian, one third Jewish. Hmm. So under the Ottomans, like late Ottoman empire, Jerusalem had a profound amount of of peace and uh, cooperation. Yeah. You know, all these old churches working together. Like, yeah, so the idea of a nation state itself is part of what has destroyed, well, yeah, uh, I don't know. 
the idea of a nation state itself has been very potent in this narrative because that's not a given mm. you know colonialism was partly a rise to to this philosophical idea of a nation state but anyway i just wanted to point that out because yeah thank you you know palestinian you know we we kind of trace the history of of israel but you know palestine is the is it goes back just as far if not farther yeah so hmm. yeah so i mean super briefly just in case this is like the we kind of trace it up till like you know a couple of weeks ago there have been conflicts and things going back and forth there have been skirmishes usually around political eras or um high holy days where there's a lot of tension and the diversity in the palestinians uh has dropped till now it is mostly a muslim jewish issue um like Christian Palestinian representation has basically dropped off the map in terms of the conversation. Christians are now basically only involved proxy to the conversation through America, mm. which, yeah, I mean, all sorts of weird political things going on there. Uh, so then, yeah, uh, Arab groups have been um, arguing, uh, you know, allied against Israel, but that actually started to change a lot. You know, the interest in a two-state solution kind of fell off the table and people were just interested, even Arab countries like Saudi Arabia and not Iran, but uh, were trying to just say, screw it, we're going to be on, we're going to try to be on good terms with Israel. And that like made Hamas really, really anxious. And so they pulled off this incredibly coordinated attack a couple of weeks ago that killed close to 1500 israelis mostly civilians yeah and they took 150 people maybe more hostage and like war crime level um terrorism i think it's difficult to call people terrorists because sure. that's a yeah you know that word has been thrown around too loosely these last couple of weeks but, but terrorism it is, is to invoke terrorism. fear yeah, absolutely yeah that is the goal yeah. And it was the single biggest, I think this is accurate, it was the single biggest loss of Jewish life since World War II. Wow. So Jewish people are understandably infuriated and afraid globally. Yeah. I mean, again, and the, the reaction, goal is yeah. to strike fear. It, yeah. Now, yeah. I just want to briefly add to, though, uh, Hamas feeling threatened was not only about the potential weakening of their ambition for a Palestinian nation state. That certainly likely played a role, but um, there's also the continual, if not gradual, mm -hmm. uh, acts of imperialism from Israel. That the encroachment onto the land, onto the uh, access to resource in the Gaza Strip is also like, you know, having a boot on your neck and the oxygen yeah. supply waning. So I don't want to, I don't want to frame it as just, you know, an act right, from right, right. a place of uh, political desire. It was also um, coming from a place of experiencing threat and feeling threatened themselves. Yeah. And, you know, no yeah. part of this is like to justify anything, but to maybe contextualize where this is coming from. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, just the narratives are so angry, not just angry, hateful and violent mm. on, I have heard on both sides. And there's also people on both sides calling for peace. Um, but yeah, the U.S. just kind of came down real, real one-sidedly and pretty harshly on Israel's side. Which is not surprising. And, That's historically been the case since World War II. Right. Right. But it was very well, like it was so crystal clear yeah. from Biden in ways that I think was like it, it had absolutely no sense of like caution or restraint towards what has gone on to be Israel's usual harsh, harsh reaction. Um, you know, in, in the past 50 years or so, it's always been, you know, Israel is doing something like cutting off Palestinian water and so there's a group of Israelis, a, a group of Palestinians, organized or not, who do some sort of protest, which gets violent by someone throwing rocks or someone maybe shooting guns. And then the Israeli response is huge, in res like disproportionate. Yeah. You know, so the Palestinian death toll has been always, always higher. And yeah, the Palestinian the death toll is history, now over 3,000. Yeah. I mean, all, all it took was a week. Yeah. You know, in two days. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a lot. Anyway, I'm going to say this has basically just been a, a history uh, lesson so far. I, I don't know. I don't know what theologically, you know, I, I theologically, I will say, I think supersessionism is always to be strongly and vociferously repudiated and there's a lot of weird christian i wish it were fringe but but ideology about what this could mean in terms of the end times and what needs to happen yeah. you know should Israel rebuild the temple? You know, what would that do theologically? Especially mm -hmm. because I think in order to do it, they would need to basically go to war with the Muslim parts of yeah. the world. So, you know, there, there's like Christian, Christians are highly relevant in this conversation and so, so, so under educated mm. and under informed theologically, historically, politically, you know, in every single way. Yeah. And I think that's just something to be incredibly cautious about. I had a, a teenager ask me today, you know, send me some TikTok of some, you know, 20 something year old white Christian claiming that this was the sign that it was the end times. Oh I was like, goodness. oh boy, please don't like, that doesn't help anything. No. And also people have been doing that literally for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So, yeah, nonstop. 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 <laughs> um, I want to say a word, Byron, about peace, because you brought up the idea that there have been people advocating for peace on both sides. Oh. And I think for many of us who are Christian listening to this podcast, there may be a strong uh, resonance with this idea of peace, that peace is very Christian, peace is what we desire, and... I don't disagree with that, but I do think we need to qualify what we mean by peace. Mm. 
again, when I was talking about this history of the Jewish refugees moving into this land, this was historically the promised land that God had promised to the people of Israel that they had been exiled from numerous times, you know, and most recently this historical exile that uh, culminated in the Shoah, the Holocaust. Uh I don't think anyone can say you do not deserve a home. You do not deserve a place to be safe. And what space makes more sense than than the land that was theirs at one point. Uh And yet the land has not been theirs and it has been occupied by someone else who has not been um, violently or imperially uh, stealing that land. You know, Uh certainly like for generations, this has been a people living in that region uh, without any kind of conquest or domination of, you know, Jewish people to that, to the claim of that land. So the question then is, okay, who has a right to this land, right? You know, and, and there's such tension there. And so now within that framework of there maybe not being a single right answer, uh, you move uh, to the present day where you have a violent terrorist attack. And I'm not going to mince words with that, that the Hamas attack was violent and it was terrorist it was for the sake of causing fear and 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 creating destruction that was that was its goal the response has also been not just violent but i would say also for the purpose of terror that it's also been terrorist and it can be easy then to say oh both sides are wrong but i think what is also missed in that is that both sides have reason for why they were doing what they're doing now, again, reason yeah. doesn't justify. I want to be very clear about that, that we can understand why someone causes harm and not say that it makes it then okay for them to cause harm. Right. But when we advocate for peace on both sides, it's like, okay, if Israel encroaches on and takes land from the Palestinian people and then says, okay, let's call it peace, is that peace if they were to just settle at that moment? Right. You know, or if Hamas attacks and then says, okay, let's just call it peace. Is it peace after the death of thousands of Jewish people? So I just want to be very tenuous and careful with this idea of peace that you're, you know, if we're not careful to just decry peace, we'll, we'll offend people because their desire is perhaps most um, superficially expressed as a desire for retribution but more deeply desire uh, expressed as a desire for justice. And that justice is ultimately not something that we have the capacity to create. That is God's justice. And so in, in light of the impossibility of justice in situations where there is no right, what does it look like for us to be advocates for peace? What does it look like for us to be champions of God's love? It's a really complicated issue that saying peace on both sides, I don't think it really scratches the surface of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I wish there was more to do than lament and be prophetic. Well, there has to be more, I th- right? I think, I think 
one thing is to get to know people and to talk with people. Yeah. I think a lot of empathy and humanization can go such a long way. Yeah. And there is, you know, political activism that is taking place where people are going to demonstrations, people are sharing on their social media, um, both trying to correct false information or trying to spread accurate information. Um, You know, there are other efforts, you know, people writing to their legislators, um, you know, maybe even like finding ways to send money and resources to support, support people who are suffering with their, you know, food and water cut off. And um, so there, there are real things that people are doing, but in the grand scale, this is an issue not just of people, but an issue of systems. It's an issue of government, right? That, that Hamas is making decisions on behalf of the Gaza people that they do not have a direct say in. And in a right. similar way, not the same way, but a similar way, the Israeli government is making decisions on behalf of the people of Israel that many, and I, and I think this, I'm, I would be remiss if I didn't say this in this podcast, many, 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 many Jews have been protesting the actions of Israel, particularly the response of genocide right now um, after Hamas's terrorist attack. There has been a huge outcry from within both the Israeli Jew population, but also the international Jewish population huge outcry against this violence. Right. So this is in some ways not an issue of the Jewish people at large, but an issue of the Israeli government and Hamas that is catching many Jewish and Palestinian people in its wake. So many. Yeah. You know, a a word came to me right now. Um, I was thinking about Jeremiah who is rebuking the false prophets who preach Uh, peace, peace when there is no peace. And I don't think I hear anyone saying there is peace right now, (laughs) but I do hear people again, calling for a very simplistic understanding of peace. Yeah. And And we have, we have an episode on that. (laughs) Yeah. I think is pretty robust. Are we talking the anti-violence one or? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, anti-violence is such a complicated thing because it's so easy for us to justify our retaliation and say it's in response to what has happened before us. But, you know... Or preventative of, like, you know, we need to eliminate them so that this doesn't happen again. I Like, I... It very, very quickly came... Arose as a narrative that this is Israel's 9-11. Okay, well, if you look at 9-11 the response to it was not good an unjustified and and useless war in the middle east in afghanistan that was just a failure the whole way through by all accounts yeah from all sides and you know an erosion of people's rights 
mm-hmm. across the world, but even, you know, civilians in the US. Yeah. So like, okay, so compare it to 9-11 by all means, but then take that as a warning sign. So yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot of complexity that I think at its best Israel and Palestine have such depth of capacity to contribute to positively and and beautifully to each other. The the diverse rainbow of of interfaith and intercultural communication and and togetherness that at its best can happen and has happened in that region uh, is impressive um, you know the the way that orthodox catholic protestant churches kind of have to but also have figured out ways to deal with the the tensions and and the resonances and the harmonies and you know to ha- to have these mosques and synagogues and churches also close together there's something about that that is i think the ideal that mm. is the the goal in some ways and of course it's hard yeah but you know the holy land it's it's called the holy land you know both you and i char do this discipline of walking barefoot yeah and we do that in recognition. We both do it um, in recognition of holy ground. And I think there's something holy to that ground. That means that it should be protected and valued and cherished. Mm. And I think we we perform a sacrilege when we allow the level of violence to persist both types of violence you were talking about, you know, the, the extreme acts of brutality and also the subtle, slow acts of oppression. Yeah. Yeah. And and what you're describing about the interpersonal, intercommunal, interfaith harmony, it's not easy, (laughs) but when people sit in that tension and seek to love despite and maybe even through difference. I agree that that is like the ideal that is profound and it's beautiful and it's, and it's possible. It's possible. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what I want to say is as, as a brief comparison, the U S love wars in the nineties were hugely violent, but also deeply rooted in ethnic identity. Now, Mm. you know, the uh, Eastern European um, Slavic region for or, or uh, Balkan region that um, for many people outside of that seems like one <laughs> very common ethnic identity was like the distinctions were hugely important and the um, result of a great 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 amount of tension and yet both of us Byron um, have now been present in that region i was there for this conference called renewing our minds that was about reconciliation between people from these regions now that's you know individual it's not the entire community and in some ways it could seem perhaps trite to look at the ways that 
reconciliation took place just by like sharing a room together or breaking bread or other things. But I think it is profound. And I think it is emblematic of the potential of human beings to see one another's humanity despite the violent propaganda and the violent um, histories that we hold on to that, mm. that uh, disconnect us. So people have the potential to love one another. And I think, as has been evidenced in a lot of ways, the Palestinian people and the Jewish people of Israel and, the, again, the international community of Jews have found many profound ways to love one another. And the, the issue is not people, not ultimately. Right. Byron, is there anything that you would be remiss to not have in this podcast? I just hope that my friends are safe. And I really, really, really hope that this doesn't become the trigger for huge levels of intercontinental conflict that mm. could become World War Three. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, this really points to how interconnected, I mean, this is so religious. It's so theological. It's so, we, we didn't actually touch on very much theology here because it seems so clearly theological in a sense. Like, you know, there's there's nothing here we necessarily talked about, like incarnation or the, the nature of the Trinity, but like the differences and the beliefs and identities that all of these things bring up are so important. Yeah. That, you know, it reminds us that theology can't just be a bunch of distant people talking about stuff, but like mm. figuring out what it means to do something practical, political, economic. Yeah. You know, I do think that the violence in the world creates spiritual alienation for all of us. That being here, being ignorant to the conflict or being aware of it and attempting to push off that thought is shaking up the spiritual fabric that we exist within. You know, that, that this is not just an Israel-Palestine conflict. This is something that affects all of us. And I think the most spiritually honest practice for us to engage in, probably consistently, you know, however much we can afford, recognizing that self-care is also deeply important, but is lament. That when we lament, we reconvene with the interconnected oneness that we have with people on the other side of the globe who are suffering, yeah. who are dealing with turmoil and tumult. And I think that's, that's my invitation to myself, honestly, and hopefully to, to you, Byron, and to our listeners is that lament is not about solving, fixing. It's not about saying, okay, I've done my part. That was my emotional tithe, you know, whatever. Um, all of that is coming from 
a misguided place. The place of lament is the outcry that the people who love God have a sacred responsibility toward, that our cry is communal. Hear us, Lord. Hear us when we can't do anything ourselves. Yeah, and give us the opportunity to repent and mm. forgive and address needs and insecurities and hatred and jealousy and loss and all of that. With the humility that, you know, a history of oppression does not protect us automatically from becoming the oppressor. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Because our jealousy and our hatred as righteous as it may feel is maybe not the, the, the cause of this particular conflict, but it is certainly the cause of new conflict, interpersonal conflict, uh -huh. intrapersonal conflict, you know, rupture within ourselves that is always affecting the human project. It's, uh -huh. it's always shaping the human narrative. And so even if it's small scale, when we hold on to anger, when we hold on to jealousy or, you know, and we didn't talk about this at all, but like greed is a huge part of uh -huh. empire. This desire for more, uh -huh. this desire to dominate, to control, to consume. Yeah. You know, may this violence be a wake-up call for all of us to, yeah. to, to surrender our human desire for control, our human desire for domination in all of its forms. Yeah. And in that surrender, to make space with open hands for the love of God that will encounter us in surprising ways, in the face of a stranger. Hmm. Um, I also want to say, please forgive any ignorance or lack of understanding that either of us may have expressed in the course of this conversation. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is, complicated and and difficult and our goal is to point towards love and dignity and and peace and harmony uh in real ways um so knowing that this is a really really sensitive sensitive topic yeah. uh and to some extent you know it there's something that feels quite presumptuous mm. that you know we can just pop in and decide to sit here and talk for an hour about stuff that we have clearly stated how much we don't know about it. Yeah. So, you know, we don't seek to be necessarily authoritative. I'm, this is one of those episodes, you know, kind of like after the uh, election a couple of years ago, just Byron processing, yeah. um, uh, us processing. Uh, and maybe we have some tools that, would make our theological, historical, personal journal interesting to other people as well. Mm.
if you've come this far, thank you for joining Byron and me on this heavy journey discussing, again, political, historical, ethnic, religious conflict, theological conflict that doesn't have easy answers. So thank you. And as always, beloved, may you find wonder in the mundane. Hope, 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 hope amidst this chaos. And comfort in the love that makes you, you. Go in peace. Thank you.